Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. Chapter 3. North Africa Adventure. Up to this time, late 1942, two major airborne operations had been undertaken. One had been used as a morale builder. It was a night drop by a parachute company led by Major John Frost upon a radar station on the coast of France at Bruneval, and then a withdrawal by sea. It was very effective propaganda. A certain amount of useful lessons were learned, not least the importance of esprit de corps and discipline, characteristics which were, I think, rather lacking in this company. John Frost agreed with me on this point when we discussed the operation afterwards. The second was the dropping of a parachute brigade in North Africa, ahead of the advancing First Army. In this operation, the force was dropped too far in front of the main army and therefore was placed in a perilous position. However, the valour and fighting ability of the Parachute Brigade was proved beyond doubt. 
so much so that they were used as frontline infantry, although this really was a waste of valuable and specially trained men. Nevertheless, the Parachute Brigade earned great distinction because of its courage and dash on this occasion. Thus, with only these two minor operations as a guide, the 1st Airborne Division embarked for destinations unknown. I had been informed that I was to detail two companies of glider pilots to stand by. The rest of the battalion was to follow. I detailed this force to be commanded by my second-in-command, Major Morris Willoughby, but General Hopkinson insisted that I myself should command the first group and go out with the 1st Airborne Division to Africa. It was a strange experience and I was full of foreboding. I knew that headquarters had no idea what they were driving up to as far as the glider pilot regiment was concerned, but no effort of mine succeeded in bringing even a glimmer of light into their darkness. There was indeed a great gulf between those in authority and myself as to our proper role in battle. The majority of the pilots in my force had had little flying at all, other than that in the training schools, owing to lack of tug aircraft. I calculated that in something like six months they would have been lucky to have got in even eight hours. I had already mentioned this to the staff. It was very little to have to face an operation with. I simply could not get any information about how and where they were to obtain flying practice in Africa when they arrived, and as a result I was deeply distressed with the whole arrangement. I was accused quite often of worrying too much, but after all I was an aviator, and I knew what this quite casual treatment could do to the aspirations of my pilots. I was also not unaware of the signs of envy and even jealousy, the unspoken hope that we might be brought down a peg or two, whether we liked it or not. Our first night at North Africa was the port of Oran, where we disembarked by night. We boarded some American transport, driven by black American soldiers, I remember, and were carried in an endless convoy throughout the night, arriving the following morning at a temporary prison of war camp, where we were given American pup tents. Camp was near a place called Tizi on the Mascara Plain, a rather beautiful part of North Africa, and those who were with me won't forget that camp in a hurry. It was an inappropriate place for an airborne assault force to end up in. We had been there only a few days when I was sent for and told to fly to Algiers, where I was to meet Colonel Dunn, the commander of the United States wing that was to train and tow us to whatever target would be needed. After some time, we were moved out of the camp and onto another part of the Mascara Plain, where the Americans were attempting to clear several airstrips. My whole concern was to get the pilots onto the airstrips and into the air, as I wanted them in a flying environment as quickly as possible. I still could not find out if there were any gliders, and this distressed me, for I was becoming really concerned about the morale of my air crews. No one could tell me what arrangements had been made, and there had been no sign of General Hopkinson, the divisional commander, for weeks. General Browning had also lost him. I found out afterwards that Browning had waited in North Africa for as long as he was allowed in order to discuss the impending operation with General Hopkinson, but the latter had kept out of General Browning's way. At last, I was sent for and told to report to General Hopkinson in Algiers, where I met him as arranged. He was in splendid form and had obviously pulled off something that pleased him. Hoppy, as he was affectionately known, was an amusing little man, Very short with black wavy hair, he was very ambitious and delighted at having been made up to a general. He had, I felt, pulled a fast one on General Browning in avoiding him in North Africa, and I wondered, as I waited for him, to send for me just what he'd been up to. I was more than certain that he had committed the glider force to something, and he most certainly had. "'Well, George,' the general greeted me, "'it's nice to see you. I have a very interesting operation for you to study.' I looked at him and wondered what on earth was coming next." I've been to see General Montgomery, he continued, and he has agreed to use the 1st Airborne Division on a night assault on Sicily. I held my breath. 
I did not like the sound of the developments. He motioned me to a map of the island that was hanging on the wall. I have agreed to land the air landing brigade on the night of July the 9th and 10th on the beaches in the neighbourhood of Syracuse. Another force of parachutists will be dropped at Catania and a further force supported by a glider operation at Augusta. I made a quick calculation. It was now April the 1st. There was roughly about three months left, no time at all, when one considered that there were no airstrips, tugs or gliders. Now, let's have a look at these photographs. And he leaned over a table on which were a number of aerial photographs of the Sicilian beaches. I looked at them and, to my horror, saw that they were rock-strewn with cliffs and that the fields had stone walls. Well, said the general, looking hard at me, what do you think? I hesitated a moment and then said, You know, sir, that the pilots have had no flying practice for at least three months and little or no experience of night flying at all. Oh, replied the general, we will soon put that right. The US Air Force are going to supply the tugs and gliders. American gliders? I asked incredulously. Yes, what difference will that make? Difference, sir? Why, they hardly know our own gliders, let alone American. Well, you'll have to put up with it, won't you? He said in some heat. Yes, sir, I will try to do so, but this looks a pretty stiff landing place, don't you think, sir? I asked and knew that I had made a mistake. Now look here, Colonel Chatterton, he said sternly. I'm going to leave you for half an hour, and in that time you can study the photographs. If at the end of that time you still think that this is too difficult, you can consider yourself relieved of your command. He walked to the door of the room and looked back at me. Half an hour. You see? I shall then return... He left the room and closed the door, leaving me to my thoughts. And what thoughts? I was faced with an appalling situation. My glider pilots, whether in the temporary prison camp at Teasy or back in England, had had little or no flying experience, and there was no officer to take over from me with any more experience than the NCOs if I resigned. Then this frightening operation. Obviously, I must keep my silly mouth shut and use all my experience to try to relieve the situation. The minutes ticked by as I paced up and down, and finally I made up my mind that at all costs I must stand by the men, despite the fact that I considered the plan to be mad. The whole situation was astounding, and I felt sure that it had been sold to Monty, with the best salesman's manner, that airborne troops had to be used at all costs, otherwise they might never be used at all. The general returned and I said nothing. Neither did he. We continued to discuss the pros and cons. He was like a little boy, he was so pleased. Immediately afterwards, I returned to Mascara, for I had heard that there were some gliders on the Iran airfield. Sure enough, there were. They were scattered all over the airfield in huge crates. I immediately sent about 50 glider pilots to uncrate them and build them on the airfield, being relieved beyond measure to give them work to perform, which had something to do with aircraft again. There was no accommodation for them on the airfield, but they began working hard, and as they uncrated the gliders, they literally went into the crates and turned them into billets for themselves. In no time, with only the handbook to guide them and one US corporal to show them, they erected about 30 gliders, and when an American tug appeared, the gliders were flown out to the series of airstrips which the US Air Force had built for themselves. I now had to think up some form of training programme. I divulged that if the flight was to be a night one, the landing would have to be done without ground aids. But the only one who seemed at all perturbed was myself. I decided to try a moonlight landing, so I took up a Waco, as it was called, and tried it out. It was entirely different from a Hotspur or Horsa, the British gliders, for whereas these were made of wood, the Waco was made of steel and fabric. Its glide was flat and the whole scheme of flight was different. It was dual controlled with a large cockpit capable of carrying 13 men or one jeep. 
The nose lifted up so that the load could be run out of the glider and it could land on a fixed undercarriage or on skids. It was a pleasant aircraft to fly and handled very easily. On takeoff, perhaps the most disconcerting thing was the huge dust cloud that was blown up from the airstrips by the tug, for the strips were just lengths of dust cut into the corn. However, it was something that one got used to after a practice or two. I took the glider up and released it about 2,000 feet. It was a thrilling feeling and I found that I could see the ground quite clearly. We gradually descended and the moon was so bright it was very similar to landing by day. Gently turning into the airfield, I brought her down as easily as if it had been lit up by the sun. This gave me greater confidence for the air crews and I set about listing an intensive refresher course. It was imperative that the pilots should be given all the practice they could get, but apart from this I felt that after the treatment they had suffered in the last weeks, a flying environment was vital to the success of the whole operation, otherwise there was going to be a disaster. During this period, it was decided that the RAF would bring out a number of horses from England, a hazardous operation called Turkey Buzzard. It entailed towing the great horse gliders from the southwest coast of England to Sali in North Africa and then across North Africa to the Mascara Plain. Each glider had three pilots for relief and many and varied were the adventures of these pilots. It was during one of these flights that Alistair Cooper excelled himself. He was piloting one of the gliders when his team was intercepted by German Condors. When it was seen that the Halifax bomber towing the glider had no chance with the glider on tow, Cooper pulled off and descended into the sea. The bomber flew on into the cloud and fought the condors off. In the meantime, Cooper and his two co-pilots launched dinghies and floated off. The condors came back and machine gunned them, but they failed to register any hits and flew off. 24 hours later, a corvette picked them up from the sea, and in no time Alistair Cooper was back at the controls again, piloting another horse glider, which arrived in time to be briefed for the attack on Sicily. The true spirit of these remarkable men was now beginning to emerge. Later, they were to be tested by many different aspects of the war, but these early experiences gave an assurance that they would never be lacking in courage and endurance when put to the test. The two following narratives are by glider pilots who took part in Operation Turkey Buzzard. The first is told by Staff Sergeant Gordon Jenks, one-time jazz trumpeter in the Highland Light Infantry Dance Band. We'd settled down into a normal flying and military routine at Holmesley South when we were teamed up three glider pilots to a crew. At about the same time, we began dinghy drill and prepared for ditching until we could do it with our eyes shut. I crewed up with my two special pals, Percy Atwood and Harry Flynn. Percy was a charming, soft-spoken fellow. A little over medium height and solidly built, he tackled every job with the same calm, unshakable thoroughness. An inveterate pipe smoker, it was just impossible for him to panic a comforting bloke for anybody to have around. Harry Flynn was a small, slightly bandy-legged cockney with an irrepressible sense of humour. He had a fascinating way of using the expression cowson, almost every other sentence, which never failed to amuse me. One Friday lunchtime, the three of us were contemplating whether or not to go up to town for the weekend when we were sent for by Major Cooper. He informed us that on the following day we were to do a ten-hour tow, the longest ever attempted by a tug-glider combination. A Halifax tug had been fitted up with overload fuel tanks, enabling it to carry 2,400 gallons of petrol. Pilot of the Halifax and skipper of the tug glider combination was Flight Lieutenant Buster Briggs. Our instructions were to jettison the undercarriage immediately after takeoff, and at the end of the tow, cast off and do a skid landing at RAF Station Hearn, a few miles away. In the pilot's cabin of a horser, there are two seats side by side, and the aircraft can be flown from either seat. 
We arranged to each do one hour's actual flying in every three hours, and 20 minutes each on the final stages of the trip. But in fact, it didn't quite work out that way. Soon after takeoff, poor Harry became airsick and was ill for practically the whole 10 hours. Even Percy succumbed to airsickness after a few hours, with the result that I had to spend about seven hours continuously at the controls. It had its compensations, however, as I ate the whole of the sandwiches provided for the three of us. Nevertheless, I wasn't altogether sorry to see Hearn Aerodrome come into view after a triangular flight of something like 1,400 miles, about a 1,000 miles of which I had spent at the controls. I landed on the grass beside the main runway and was glad to get out and stretch my legs. A utility van was waiting to take the three of us back to Holmesley South, where I proceeded without delay to the mess and downed a few pints of beer. Unfortunately, this first long tow had a tragic sequel. The next morning we discussed the trip with Major Cooper and suggested one or two improvements to make things easier on future long tows. He was very pleased with the whole affair and told us to get off to London on a 36-hour pass. I mentioned the horse are still at Hearn and he told me not to worry about it as Sergeant Sunter and Davis had asked to go over and fly it back. I spoke to Geordie Sunter, a short stocky little man from Durham, before he and Sergeant Davis climbed into the Halifax which was to take them to Hearn, pick up the horse and tow them back. Harry, Percy and I watched the Halifax as it headed for Hearn which lay just beyond some distant trees. It appeared to be in trouble with smoke coming from the port outer engine. A minute or so later... There was a terrific explosion and thick black smoke shot hundreds of feet in the air. There were no survivors. Needless to say, it was a very subdued trio that set off for London. On arriving back at Holmesley the following night, I was approached by the RAF sergeant who ran the station dance band with a rather unusual request. He asked me if I would be willing to play the last post and long revalley on my trumpet at the funeral of the aircrew and glider pilots who died in the Halifax crash. Naturally, I agreed to take part in what for me turned out to be a most moving and unforgettable experience. A large contingent of RAF aircrew and glider pilots turned out impeccably dressed for the funeral parade. They marched slowly into the cemetery with a precision that would have done credit to the Brigade of Guards and stood in three ranks a few yards away from the freshly dug graves. The pallbearers lowered the coffins gently into the earth as the RAF padre spoke a few words. Relations of the dead aircrew looked at the coffins for a few moments alone with their thoughts and then stepped back as a firing party of aircrew and glider pilots lined up either side of the graves. They fired three volleys and I started to play. Never have I played with so much feeling as at that moment. The notes of my trumpet rang out over the quiet cemetery on that fine May morning. I noticed the relatives weeping softly. Birds were singing and an aircraft droned overhead. As the mourners filed softly from the cemetery, I realised that a great and lasting bond between the RAF and the glider pilot regiment had finally been cemented. Late one afternoon, a few days later, three glider crews, including our own, proceeded by road transport to Netherhaven, where we were given a lecture by the intelligence officer and issued with escape kits. After a somewhat hasty tea in the mess, each crew was given a brand new horse glider and flew down to Port Reith in Cornwall, landing at dusk. We were allocated sleeping quarters and told to get as much sleep as possible as we were to be called at 05.30 hours the following morning. Once in bed, we lay smoking and talking quietly, wondering where we would be the following night. It wouldn't be England. That was a dead cert. Next morning, after an excellent breakfast, we assembled in the briefing room and were told that we were to fly to an American-held aerodrome called Sally in French Morocco on the North African coast. We looked at each other, all thinking the same thing. The whole trip would be over sea and the tug's navigators would have to be spot on or else we would end up in the drink. With Sally approximately 1,200 miles away, there wouldn't be any margin for error even though the Halifaxes were carrying overload fuel tanks. 
It was fitting that Major Cooper, as squadron commander, would be the first to take off at 0800 hours. He had two very good glider pilots with him, Sergeant Dennis Hall, a quiet sort of bloke, and Sergeant Antonopoulos, a very tough-looking Greek. Both these sergeant pilots were later awarded the Air Force Medal. Percy, Harry and myself were to take off at 0805 hours, and I was very pleased to know that once again we were to be towed by Buster Briggs and crew. Somehow I always felt supremely confident flying behind Buster, and so far as I was concerned there wasn't a better Halifax pilot in the squadron. The crew of the third horser, which was to take off at 0810 hours, consisted of a lieutenant, Sergeant Nigel Brown, a tall, sandy-haired fellow who sported a magnificent bushy moustache, and Staff Sergeant Galpin, Galp as he was affectionately called by all who knew him, who typified the spirit of the glider pilot regiment. An immensely powerful man of tremendous character, his aggressiveness, determination and courage couldn't fail to influence anyone with whom he came in contact. Before leaving the briefing room, we were warned to keep a sharp lookout for enemy aircraft, especially over the Bay of Biscay. Several aircraft had been shot down over the bay recently by JU-88s hunting in packs of nine or twelve. Not that we and the gliders could do much about it if we were attacked. It would simply be a case of pulling the tow-release lever, landing in the drink and hoping for the best. I didn't allow my thoughts to dwell on that unpleasant prospect. Since we had crewed up in threes, we had been taking it in turns to do the takeoffs and landings, and it was Percy's turn to do the takeoff and first hours flying, with me taking over for the second hour. Sitting in the horser, awaiting the signal to take off, I must confess, I didn't envy him. Portreath Aerodrome was situated literally on the top of the cliffs, and was surrounded on three sides by sea, and on the other side by hills. About 300 yards from the end of the runway we were using for takeoff, there was a steep drop of some 400 feet into the Atlantic. The weather was not particularly inspiring. It was a very dull, menacing day with a strong squally wind and thick black cumulus cloud with a base of under a thousand feet. After what seemed an interminable wait, Major Cooper's combination moved down the runway and became airborne. Operation Turkey Buzzard was underway. I looked at Percy, who was sitting there looking supremely confident, and he gave me the thumbs up sign. OK, Lofty, here we go, he called to me, and we started to move. We must have been no more than halfway down the runway when Percy eased the horser off the deck and from then on we were in trouble. No sooner had we become airborne than the horser flopped back on the runway with a solid thump. This procedure was repeated several times until Percy, with a last despairing heave on the controls, managed to get it to stay airborne only a few yards from the end of the runway. I had one hand on the undercarriage release lever and looked at Percy for the signal to pull it. He nodded to me just as we were about to pass over the cliff tops, and I pulled the lever. At once we were in the most fantastic flying position behind the Halifax. The starboard wing dropped viciously and it was only by holding the control wheel hard over to port that Percy was able to get the wing up to anything like its correct position. Even so, it was taking all his strength to hold it there and at the slightest sign of relaxing on his part, down would go the wing once again. Obviously something was seriously amiss and we soon found out what it was. A very anxious-looking Harry poked his head in the control cabin and yelled at the top of his voice, Stone the bleeding crows! The bleeding cows and undercart stuck in a cows and bleeding starboard wing! I suggested he went back to have another look while I tried the release lever again. After pulling the lever several times, I realised that the offending undercarriage was firmly embedded in the wing and there it intended to stay until we landed. Percy was sweating freely with his exertions and it was obvious that something would have to be done. To add to his discomfiture, the horser started to swing with a violent pendulum motion from side to side of the tug. I decided to call Buster Briggs on the intercom, as he must have been wondering what the hell was going on. 
Matchbox to zero, matchbox to zero. Are you receiving me? Are you receiving me? Over. Zero to matchbox. Zero to matchbox. Receiving you loud and clear. Go ahead. Over. I explained briefly what had happened and Buster replied, Bad luck, Glider. Do you think you can hold on? It seems a pity to turn back now we're airborne. I looked at Percy and he nodded. OK, Zero. We'll hang on and hope for the best. Out. I suggested to Percy that we fly half an hour spells instead of one hour and he readily agreed. Just then, there was a terrific burst of machine gun fire and I nearly died of fright. The bastards are attacking us already, I yelled to Harry, who popped an anxious head into the control cabin once again. I must have left my intercom on because the Halifax rear gunner came through with a laughing voice. It's all right, lofty boy, I was only testing my guns. Well, next time, tell us beforehand, you lousy bastard, I replied. You scared the thing daylights out of me. We had been airborne for about 15 to 20 minutes now and were still only about 500 feet above an angry-looking sea. The cloud base was getting lower and lower. Ahead of us, it looked as though it was down to almost sea level. Buster Briggs came through on the intercom. Zero to matchbox. I'm going to have a shot at getting above the clouds. Do you think you can hang on? Over. Percy nodded resignedly and I answered, OK, Zero, we'll do our best and start praying. Out. This was terrible. Things had been bad enough already with the starboard wing as it was. What followed now was a sheer bloody nightmare. Had things been normal before we entered cloud, Percy would have taken the horse down through the tug slipstream into a low toe position. To have attempted it with the starboard wing placed as it was would have been madness, so he had no alternative but to stay in the high toe position. The tug disappeared into the clouds and we followed. An eerie silence seemed to descend on us as we were surrounded by white, misty vapour and the glider started to get tossed around violently like a cork in a whirlpool. After a few minutes I'd lost all sense of direction. God knows whether we were flying upside down, sideways or what. I looked at the altimeter, 2,200 feet, so we were still climbing all right. Percy had been doing a magnificent job hanging on to the control column. He was sweating like mad, but his face looked as imperturbable as ever. I was glad to have him around. Just over 3,000 feet, I looked at my watch. Time to give Percy a spell. I put my hands on my own control column in its unnatural position. OK, Percy, ready when you are. Thanks, Lofty, she's all yours, and the best of luck. With these comforting words, he took his hands off his control column and mine spun round in my hands back to its normal position. I felt like a tenderfoot cowboy being put on a bucking bronco for the first time, only this horse was more vicious than any bronco. It had to be broken in. No gentle handling of the controls for this glider. It could only be mastered by sheer bloody brute strength. By dint of considerable exertion, I somehow managed to get the control column back to where it had been when I'd taken over from Percy. Thank you for listening to my reading of Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. I hope you enjoyed it. If this has piqued your interest, there are six other audiobooks available to independent company members on our Patreon site, including The Ship by C.S. Forrester and Tank by Ken Tout. It's £5 a month, and on top of audiobooks read by me, you get unlimited access to exclusive content, weekly live streams, and early access to merchandise and other deals. To join, all you need to do is search patreon.com slash wehaveways. I'll be back tomorrow with the next episode of George Chatterton's Wings of Pegasus.